Good morning again, church. You know, it is Easter tradition to do a little call and response. I simply say, he is risen, and then you say, he is risen indeed, all right? That's your cue. He is risen. He is risen indeed. Amen. Happy Easter. I am uh, so excited to be here with you guys celebrating. That's really what today is, is a, is a celebration. And I was struck as, uh, as I began diving into uh, the Easter story this time around by so many powerful uh, powerful and incredible truths, and uh, I owe some of my uh, some of my research and thoughts to my friend Pastor Andy, uh, and uh, and and just was really blessed by some of these things. You know what? I, what I was really struck by was the fact that when they showed up at the tomb, they were still expecting a body to be there. And my my friend Andy says that nobody expected nobody. Nobody expected nobody, and the Easter celebration began with this incredible reality. There was nobody standing outside of the tomb doing a countdown. If they expected nobody, it would have looked a little bit like Times Square, New York. On New Year's Eve, there would have been a big ball ready to drop. They'd have had their fireworks out. They'd have been outside the tomb counting down, waiting for that stone to wiggle just a little bit. As the night rolled into the day, they'd have been outside shouting, five, four, Three, two, one, Jesus. But nobody was expecting nobody. That first Easter surprised a lot of people. And, and a matter of fact, it was difficult for some to believe. I don't know if it's ever been difficult for you to believe. That all those years ago, they walked to that tomb hoping to prepare the body for burial, hoping to uh, at least show respect for their teacher, for their Beloved leader, but they found an empty tomb. What a fascinating thing and what a challenging thing to believe. And I'm wondering this morning how difficult it is for you to believe. If you've been challenged to believe that. I know when I first started a relationship with Jesus, things were really easy to believe. Everything was new and exciting. But as I grew and mature, I had to ask questions and, and deeper questions and harder questions and began asking a, a lot of questions about this resurrection and this story. What, what is really going on here historically? Do we have evidence? Is there proof? Does it make sense? And maybe you've struggled with some of those same questions and you've wondered. You know, this is a big year for me in my life. This year, my wife and I will have been married for 20 years. Yeah, we, uh, we both turn, well, I turned 40, let me say that, uh, <laughs> and we'll have been married for 20 years, and I, I've been thinking a lot about the power of 20 years, and uh, the memory we've, memories we've made in 20 years, the things I remember from 20 years ago, what the world was like just 20 years ago. Now, if you're 25 or so, 20 years ago feels like a long time. If you're like 40, 50, or higher, 20 years ago wasn't that long. You remember 20 years ago pretty well. It's funny to think about how the world's changed in 20 years. Let me give you some ways the world's changed in the past 20 years. In the last 20 years, the world's population grew by a quarter from 5.66 billion to 7.24 billion. There's a lot more folks in the last 20 years. Around the world, life expectancy increased by 5.2 years from 65 to 70. There's more of us that remember 20 years ago. The number of people over 60 increased from 490 million in 1990 to 765 million in 2010. There's a lot more wisdom in the world. 
1998, I remember this, only 41% of American adults were online compared to 89%. And we were listening to noise to get online that went like this. You've got mail, right? <laughs> 20 years ago. There are estimated to be more than 3 billion social media users all over the world today. That's crazy. That's crazy. 95% of adults own a cell phone in the United States and compared to under 60 in 1998. In 1998, I was rocking a root beer colored pager, right? I had one of those cool pagers that you actually called a number and talked to a person and then they typed a message and sent it to you. But apparently that wasn't cost effective because I prepaid for two years and in three months they went bankrupt. <laughs> but it was cool while it lasted for about three months I was king of the world. Companies like Tesla, GM, Ford, Uber, Google, and Apple are all developing their own self-driving cars. That would have been unbelievable 20 years ago. This one is pretty believable. The average home cost tripled from 79,000 to 280,000 unless you live in the Northwest and it's another double of that. <laughs> oh, oh, let's see if this reminds you of 20 years ago. September 4th, 1998, Google was founded. It's 20 years ago. We didn't, how do we even get information before that? How do we even know things? We had to read actual things, like paper. We had to go to libraries. We had to ask somebody who had lived past 60. Just think about things that have changed in the last 20 years. Think about how we take pictures today compared to how we took pictures 20 years ago. There was a lot of winding, right? Our wrists would get tired. If you're trying to take pictures quick, you had to have a fast thumb. Think about how we listen to music, how it's changed. Now, 20 years ago, we were past eight tracks and records. So if you're still thinking eight tracks and records, you're well past 40. 20 years ago, we had cassette tapes and we stuck pencils in there when they busted and we twisted them back up. Come on, we had all that. The younger folks are like, what are you talking about? <laughs> Think about how we watch TV and movies, right? We used to have to gather around the TV at specific times to watch a show. We had to cancel other plans because must-see TV was on. We had to figure out what we were doing. To change the channels, we had to yell at our kids, go change the channel. And they had to walk over there and click a button and twist a knob. I got a lot of that. How we learn information completely has changed. We had to believe a couple, three or four newscasters and read. People came to the door and sold us encyclopedias so we would know things. That was our hope for knowing things, right? Think about how we keep track of friends versus 20 years ago. You had to actually call somebody, write them a letter. You knew what your friend's handwriting looked like 20 years ago. When's the last time you were able to tell your friend's handwriting from someone else's handwriting? It's been a while. But I remember life 20 years ago. I remember, we have stories and memories. I remember getting our first apartment. I remember what it looked like, what it smelled like. You know what's hilarious about our first apartment? It was brand new construction. I didn't know this was a thing. I don't know much about construction. But apparently they hooked a hot water line up to our toilet <laughs> instead of a cold water line. And we would flush the toilet and steam would come out. 
And I would ask questions like, you making soup in there? <laughs> and now nobody wants to eat breakfast. <laughs> 20 years ago wasn't that long ago, but I remember 20 years ago. This morning, I want to talk about the most important event in human history from the perspective of someone who's writing 20 years after it happened. Why is this important? Because for many of us, some of our struggles when it comes to believing the story of the resurrection and believing the word of God is we have questions about when did this information come together? How did they summarize this? And when were the stories told and written? Were they passed down through oral tradition? Was it story told to story told to story and then finally someone wrote it down? And many times we have tension and arguments at the historical veracity of the story. But today, I want to challenge you to just allow me to tell you the story from the perspective of someone who was there and was writing from within 20 years of when the event actually happened. The Easter story is such an amazing story. Finding out the tomb was empty and then having people claim they actually saw Jesus. The historical narrative is so beautiful. The picture of it is so clear. But for some of us, it's still unbelievable. Maybe you used to believe and somewhere along your life journey, someone challenged the things you believed. Someone threw historical data or fact or something at you that, that challenged it in your core and you didn't have the tools or the resources to debate and you simply said, I don't know. Maybe somewhere along the line, and, uh, and I was a Sunday school attender and a Sunday school teacher. I love Sunday school. I'm not knocking Sunday school. But somewhere along the line, an answer that felt like a Sunday school answer didn't seem like enough of an answer. And so you believed, but there was tension. And so your faith kind of shrunk and you said, well, I, I basically believe, but I'm not sure what I really believe. Maybe someone challenged you. Maybe you fall into a camp this morning and you got drugged uh, to church and we're glad you're here. We're so excited. Welcome. It's good to have you. And uh, you're just like, all right, if I sit through this, then there's no fight at the Easter lunch or dinner. So I'll sit through it. You promised me he said he'd go short this week because there's an Easter egg hunt. Gotcha. <laughs> so maybe it's been unbelievable for you to think about believing this at all maybe for you when people say well the bible says so you go well that's not a good enough source for me that's not a good enough of an answer for me. I need more information than just the Bible said so. So some of the arguments that you're going to make, I'm going to hope to address a little bit of them. I want to address them from the perspective of a specific letter that was written by a specific person at a specific point in time. I want to address them from the perspective, and, and this might be new information, even for some of you that have been in church for a long time, but you may not realize that some of the letters that are inside of the Bible that are contained in there are actually letters. They're not books. They're written by individuals at individual times to individual places. And some of those letters, we have incredible historical, uh, uh, archaeological, and, and uh, the entire picture of the data is really uncontested by any historian. And so I want to spend a little time deep diving into one place and maybe make one argument this morning that will give you at least one tool to challenge what you believe. One letter written by a guy named Paul. Now, this might be interesting to you to, to learn, but Paul wrote his letters before the Gospels were written. 
Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, those gospel stories that, that are in the Bible earlier than the letters that Paul wrote were actually written much later, later than the letters that Paul wrote. Paul wrote his letters in about AD 50. Between 50 and 60, Paul wrote his letters in the 50s and in the 60s, not the 1950s. All right, he wasn't doo-wop in it. The 50s and the 60s. And here's some things that you should know about Paul. Nobody argues that Paul existed. No historians argue that Paul existed. Some of you maybe went to a class in college, you sat around a table and argued with some friends, and they said, oh, the archaeological evidence of, of Jesus is, is weak anyways. People don't even agree that Jesus ever existed in history. You should know that those arguments have kind of gone away. The archaeology and the historians all agree that Jesus did exist. If you uh, doubt me, you can Google. You can go to Wikipedia even, because Wikipedia's got to be true, right? You can Google. No one, no, no, uh, no historians argue that. And nobody argues that Paul existed and that Paul had incredible influence for a season of time. As a matter of fact, nobody argues that Paul is most directly responsible for the spread of what became Christianity. Prior to the events that Paul describes, there were not Christians prior to the resurrection. There were followers of Jesus. He had crowds and disciples, but there weren't Christians until after the events that Paul's going to describe today. So if you have your Bibles, I want you to jump into this letter that's contained within your Bible, written about 20 years after Jesus. And I'm in the letter of 1 Corinthians. And Paul's writing a letter to an actual town that actually existed. You can look through history. Corinth was a town. It was Greek. It was conquered by Rome in about AD, or BC 158, give or take. It was absolutely razed to the ground. And then basically it was occupied by Rome and Rome rebuilt it. It was in a very strategic uh, port city. And it became a very eclectic place for trade and, and for lots of different people groups kind of coming together this small uh, but then bursting community on the southern uh, peninsula there. Corinth was a, was a very renowned town. As a matter of fact, the, the temple of uh, uh, Aphrodite was there. There was a lot of uh, temples and worship that was going on there. Corinth was a big town. There's about 100, 150,000 people who lived there. And it was very diverse because any trade cities, come on, we live by a trade city. Trade cities bring different cultures. People come in. You can get good food if you live close to a coastal city. You can get diverse culture and diverse food. You can get food that's cooked by the people who came up with that food. Corinth was one of those kind of cities. And Paul, early on, after he believed in Jesus, went to Corinth. And he started a church there. And it was a, an interesting community. There were enough Jews there that when he got there, he went to the Jewish synagogue or the Jewish church. And he started telling them about Jesus. Well, they got offended at him because he was breaking from their Jewish traditions. And they didn't recognize Jesus as their Messiah or as their God. And so they kicked him out. And then he went to the Greeks or the Gentiles who lived there and began starting teaching them about Jesus. Well, this was considered especially offensive to the Jews because he was mixing culture and faith in ways that they didn't expect. But this small church explodes in Corinth. 
The problem is in any community where there's a lot of culture mixed in, the church had a lot of culture mixed in. And while they believed in Jesus, they also started kind of merging their faith with all the other faiths that had kind of grown up in that community. So they write a letter to Paul asking him questions about how to do church. They said, hey, you came here. You started this church here. You taught us about Jesus. Give us some help here because if you've ever been around church for long enough, you know sometimes church people can't agree on things. And they were having a hard time agreeing on some things. Now, one of the primary things they were having a hard time agreeing on was the idea of the resurrection. Here's why this is challenging. They were Greeks. Their core of them were Greeks. There was Romans that lived there. But in the Greek culture, they always treated the body as something that was evil and wicked and the spirit or the soul as something that was beautiful and pure. And they couldn't get their minds around. They were okay that Jesus existed. No one had questions about Jesus existing. They were okay that Rome had executed Jesus. No one had questions about Jesus being executed by Rome. The hard thing they had was why would Jesus want to raise again? If he got to a spiritual plane, why come back and take a body? Because in their culture, their body is the thing that was wicked. So Paul's writing, trying to teach and explain the importance and the necessity of the resurrection. Essentially, he's saying all of our faith is held together by this. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 1, I'm going to read just a few verses for you and tell you what's going on. He says, now, brothers, I want to remind you of the gospel that I preached to you. Gospel is a word we throw around in church circles a lot, but he's going to explain what he means when he says gospel. Which you received and which you have taken on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel, you are saved. If you hold firmly to the word I preach to you, otherwise you've believed in vain. Verse three, here it is. For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance. He says, this is the most important thing to get right. That Jesus or that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures and that he appeared to Peter and then to the 12. He's saying, basically, you can test these facts. You can talk to these guys. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers at the same time, most of whom are still living. And I love this, though some have fallen asleep. I love that picture. All throughout the New Testament, Whenever anyone talks about death, they always use this phrase, falling asleep. You know what's amazing about falling asleep? Eventually you what? He's saying you have a hope that you're going to see loved ones again. You have a hope that death is not the end. You have the hope that if you die, you've just fallen asleep. And he's saying some of our brothers have fallen asleep. He's not worried about it. Why? Because he knows he's going to see them again. Verse 7. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, he appeared to me also as one abnormally born. He says, all of these people saw this. Now, I love this letter that he writes to Corinth. Now, I'm going to give you just a couple of data points, and I'm going to invite you to check my facts. Maybe for some of you, you've struggled with just, well, Pastor Mike, you just said you were going to talk to me about a letter, but that you just talked to me out of the Bible again. And I'm not so sure that I, I hold that as evidence of, of what was going on. I just want you to know, historically, no one contests that Paul lived. No one contests that he wrote letters. 
Paul is responsible for about 12 letters that he wrote to different various churches. Now, in all full transparency, if you Google Paul's 12 letters, some people argue that Paul may not have written all 12 of those letters. Some people argue that historically there was some what's called pseudepigrapha in there. Now, pseudepigrapha is when you write something, but you sign your name as someone famous so that other people will read what you wrote or that you can sell it for money. And some will argue that there's some letters that, that they think are pseudepigrapha. I'll give you those letters. That's about six of them. But no one argues that six of the letters were in fact penned and written by Paul. Again, check it out. Wikipedia, Google, whatever your preferred way of figuring out information is. Test me in this. And this letter, 1 Corinthians, is unquestionably a letter that was written by the Apostle Paul who did live. And we can date the letter. We know that that's the case. So I'm going to give you some information. He was writing in the 50s and 60s, and the information is just some basic stuff so you can track with me, right? He writes 1 Corinthians in AD 55. He's writing that letter right then in AD 55. And he's writing to people who, who is, are, are asking the questions about the resurrection story. Now, we know that Jesus was crucified we have a pretty good idea of when, but historians will argue, so I'm gonna give you some margin of error. We know he lived. We know he was killed by Rome somewhere between AD 30 and AD 33. He's writing this letter about no more than 25, 22 years after the event. Why is this important? Because you've heard somewhere in a class at a lecture, you read a blog, someone was arguing with you that all of these letters came about later, that, that they were gathered from Christians who had heard uh, stories, but that's not the case here. This is a person writing to a church that has been established. The church has been here for a while and he's writing a specific letter to them at a specific time and we're just 20 something years after the event. I can remember some pretty important events from 20 years ago. I remember my funny toilet. I think I would remember someone raised from the dead. And I saw him and I hung out and ate fish with him. He's talking to people when there's eyewitness evidence available. There's no longer dispute of these particular facts. People don't argue about them. I like the way Wikipedia talks about Jesus because it's just hilarious. It says the baptism and the crucifixion are two events in the life of Jesus which are subject to almost universal assent. People don't argue that Jesus was alive. Historians from that time, not faith-based, wrote about his baptism. And we know he died. It's not till we get to the resurrection that we start arguing about things. Because up until that point in history, everyone who died stayed, guess what? Dead, right? Up until that point of history, everyone who died stayed dead. And certainly, if it was a surprise to his closest followers who were hanging out at the tomb waiting to just redress his body, if they weren't expecting him to raise from the dead, then no one else was expecting him to raise from dead the dead. You can argue the exact date of this within a couple of years, 
But historically, you cannot argue that he lived, that he was baptized, and then he died. And that just 20-something years later, Paul's writing letters about that effect. Not 50 years later, not 100 years later, not 400 years later when the scriptures came together in the form that we have them now. 20-something years later, he's writing letters, and he believes that Jesus lived, died, and was rose from the dead. But that's not all. He had actually already been preaching that before he wrote this letter. So that's not the earliest historical account that we have of people believing. As a matter of fact, he had to be in Corinth before that. So actually, AD 52 is when he was in Corinth starting the church. If you remember in the letter he wrote, uh, 1 Corinthians 15:1, when we started, he said, now brothers, I want to remind you. I can't remind you of something I haven't already told you. So I had to previously tell you something if I'm going to remind you about it. Does that make sense? You're with me. Some of you are yelling at your kids and you're like, didn't I already tell you? They're like, you didn't tell me. You're like, oh, well now I am. And next time I'm gonna really be mad. He's reminding them of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and have taken your stand. Now this is important because now we've narrowed it down to a 20 year window. And he says, uh, he says, by this gospel, you're saved if you hold firmly to the word I preached to you. Otherwise, you've believed in vain. He's saying, if you try to believe, but leave out the resurrection, you've believed in vain. Verse three, for I received what I passed on to you. Here it is, as of first importance. Here's exactly what Paul believed. Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures. He was buried. He was raised on the third day, according to the scriptures. And then he appeared to Peter and then to the twelve. Paul is saying, I got this information as I believed in Jesus. And he mentions someone specific that got that information firsthand, Peter. Paul actually went and hung out with Peter. And we have evidence of Paul spending time with Peter. If we bring the time back, uh, line back up, he's in Jerusalem at about AD 40. At about AD 40, he's in Jerusalem and he's hanging out with Peter at this time. Now here's something that I just think would be true for you and it's true for me. If you became a follower of Jesus, you, got, you, you had an experience with Jesus, became a follower of Jesus and there were people alive who had actually hung out with him, who had been there when he was crucified and then ate fish with him after he rose from the dead, you'd probably travel and go visit them if you could. Go hang out with them and hear stories. There's nothing like getting stories from someone who was there, right? It's one thing to like hear a story and then you're like, oh, this is a cool story. But if someone's been there, you wanna hear their stories. So Paul, who didn't start off as a follower of Jesus, becomes a follower of Jesus and he goes to Jerusalem to meet with Peter and have a conversation. How do we know this? Because in one of his other letters that nobody argues, he wrote Galatians, he says, uh, Galatians 1.18, he says, then after three years, he gets all specific. I went up to Jerusalem to get acquainted with who? Peter. And I stayed with him for 15 days. He's very specific. I saw none of the other apostles, only James, the Lord's brother. Verse 20, I assure you before God that what I'm writing to you is no lie. He's like, I'm writing, he's writing to his friends. He's like, I hung out with Peter. 
And when I was there, I met James, the Lord's brother. Now, if you don't know much about James, the Lord's brother, it's one of my favorite stories in the whole Bible because James, the brother of Jesus, the half-brother of Jesus, was not a follower of Jesus when Jesus was alive. And I don't know if you have a sibling, but we make this joke a lot. I don't know what it would take for your sibling to convince you they were God. (laughs) Think about your sibling for a second. What would it take for your sibling to convince you they were God? Because everything that Jesus did while he was alive was not enough for James. James was like, nah, he's cool, but he's not God. But suddenly something changes. After the resurrection, James becomes a follower of Jesus. Something must have happened that James saw, that James witnessed, that changed the perspective of the half-brother of Jesus who went from yeah, that's not God, to yeah, that is God. As a matter of fact, James became one of the first pastors, leaders of the church in Jerusalem, and he actually was killed. He was thrown off the roof of the temple because he would not deny that his brother had raised from the dead and was God. I don't know what your brother would have to do to convince you that they're God. Jesus did that. We believe it's the resurrection. James became a follower of Jesus. That's incredible. That's incredible. So Paul says, I was hanging out. I was a Christian for three years. And after that, in AD 40, I was hanging out in Jerusalem. That means he became a Christian three years before that, which is about 37 AD. So Paul is giving a timeline of when he began believing in Jesus. Not just that Jesus lived, but that he lived, went to the cross, paid the price for all of our sins, spent three days in the grave, and then walked out of the grave. Why is this so important? Because these are not disputed facts historically in terms of the timeline of Paul's faith. And for some of you, maybe it's been a struggle to hear things about the resurrection, to hear things about the Bible says, to hear things about those, those kind of defended uh, uh, points of the faith. But I'm just trying to articulate to you this morning, quite simply, this very clear timeline that within four, five, six, maybe seven years of the, res- of the crucifixion of Jesus, the death of Jesus, there were followers of Jesus who so radically believed that he had raised from the dead that they had incredible life transformations. So some of you might be thinking, well, okay, Paul was just crazy. Those early church people must have been crazy. Except for that, historically, no one argues that Paul was very intelligent. You read the letters that we know for sure he wrote. You read 1 and 2 Corinthians. You read Romans. You read Galatians. And they read like they've been written by a lawyer. Paul was incredibly educated. He was in the elite class, probably a Pharisee. He came from a wealthy home and a wealthy family. No one historically believes that Paul was a crazy person. Now, his behaviors sure were were the kind of behaviors that you would see from someone who radically believes something. But he certainly wasn't crazy. He gave intelligible defenses of his faith. He started churches. Some of you say, well, okay, he wrote well. But what's your evidence that he really believed? Your evidence that he really believed is he left behind wealth, family, privilege, and he did something that was absolutely unheard of that time. He went right into the face of Jewish custom and law and Roman law, and he risked 
the same kind of death that Jesus experienced by teaching and talking about Jesus in such a way. Nobody willfully went to, to, to places where they knew they would whip you and scourge you and rip the flesh off your back for stating your beliefs, but Paul did. What would it take to convince you to give your life away that way? He jumped on ships and sailed around, stopping at cities, telling everyone he could about his belief. And you know what they did to him? They threw rocks at him. They beat him. They kicked him out. He says he was naked and beaten and shipwrecked. He was bit by snakes. No one argues, at the very least, Paul believed with some conviction. Sometimes I wonder if our faith would hold up if someone challenged us and threatened us with even the most limited of things. We're going to cut your internet off if you don't, if you don't change your faith. How many Christians would be like, well, <laughs> right? Paul gave up everything. He certainly believed, and he believed radically. We have evidence as far back as AD 37 that he believed. What's fascinating is we know that not only did Paul believe, but there were many others that began to believe. Paul says, go meet them. Go meet them. Let me list a few off to you. Here's Peter. Here's the other disciples. Here's James, the brother of Jesus. There's more than 500 of them hanging around Jerusalem. Some of them have scattered and some of them have died. But it's only been 20 years later. You can talk to them. Go ask the questions that I asked. He invited them to do that. As a matter of fact, because no one believed he was crazy, and no one believed he was just making it up because his life had changed so much, you can look at some of the other evidence that he's referring to. He's referring to places like in Acts chapter four. Acts is a history that was written by Luke, probably written 10 to 15 years after Paul uh, writes his letters. And Luke sets off to investigate all the effects and get a historically accurate narrative. And in Acts chapter four, uh, beginning in verse 10, the early church, right after the resurrection, people were believing. It says, then you know this, all you people of Israel, that is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from this dead, that this man stands before you healed. This is the early church disciples who have just watched Jesus get killed, raised from the dead. They're now seeing other miracles happen. They're facing the same people in Jerusalem who just killed Jesus. So they know the people that they're facing are legit. They have authority to take you out. And he's saying, you crucified him, but God raised him from the dead. That's why this other man stands before you healed. He's the stone you builders rejected and to become the capstone. Then they say, salvation is found in no one else for there's no other name under heaven given to men by which we can be saved. And when they saw the courage of Peter and John and realized they were unskilled, ordinary men, they were astonished. And they took note that these men had been with Jesus. This is just days after the resurrection. This is just days, weeks and days after. Why is this so important? It's so important because I want to at least, at least challenge you that right after the resurrection event occurred, people believed it happened. Not 20 years later, though they were writing about it 20 years later. Not 50 years later, though they were writing about it 50 years later. Not 500 years later. Right after the event, 
Something had happened and people believed. And these men's actions and lives backed up what they saw and what they experienced. When Peter and John were arrested for their preaching by the same men who killed Jesus, they said this, Acts chapter four. But Peter and John replied, you judge for yourself whether it's right in God's sight to obey you rather than God. For we cannot listen to this help speaking about what we have seen and what we have heard. They saw it firsthand. There were some 500 witnesses that they knew that had saw it. Paul was like, if this is the main deal, we have to get this right. This is the central truth of the gospel. Early eyewitnesses, people saw Jesus after the resurrection. Paul goes on in 1 Corinthians in his letter to finish his argument, verse 12. He says, but if it's preached that Christ has been If it's preached that Christ has been raised from the dead, how come some of you say there's no resurrection from the dead? If there is no resurrection from the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. Listen to this. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is useless and so is your faith. If he hasn't been saved, then my preaching is useless and so is your faith. Everything hangs on him being raised. That's why scholars have been arguing about it for millennia. That's why historians have been battling over it for millennia. That's why archaeologists have been arguing over it for a millennia. Because if he has power over death, then our hope is not in vain. Here's the thing. If you've seen your savior go into the grave and come out victorious, what fear do you have when facing criticism when they, when, when they stand before these guys that, that had legal authority to arrest them and kill them, they're not afraid of them. What are you going to do, kill me? I just watched my Savior come out of the grave. I have confidence. Paul believed, others believed, not centuries later, not years later. And for 20 years later, he was still preaching, teaching, and risking his life. Paul summarizes the story this way. At the very end of 1 Corinthians 15, 54, he says, death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O oh, death, is your victory? Where, O oh, death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, he gives us victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my dear brothers, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourself fully to the work of the Lord because you know that your labor for the Lord is not in vain. Paul says the victory that we have is understanding that Jesus was stronger than the grave. That was his whole argument. That was his whole, his whole point. He risked his life, his wealth, his wealth. He risked everything to go from place to place to people who hated him to simply communicate this truth that Jesus was not in the grave, that Jesus had conquered the grave, that Jesus was more powerful, that God was more powerful than the grave. And here's what I want you to hear. If God's more powerful than the grave, if he's stronger than the grave, then he better be more powerful than whatever situation you're dealing with today. He better be more powerful than whatever addiction you're fighting. He better be more powerful than whatever relationship's been broken. He better be more powerful. If he's more powerful than the grave, come on now, then he's more powerful than all of those things. 
if freedom from death is promised, then how much more freedom from the things the enemy would use to ensnare us here on earth? So here's my question. Where are you at in your belief? Where are you at in your belief? Have you kind of shelved your belief? Your believer's been kind of set to low? And it's been a while since you've thought about just how powerful God must be to conquer the grave, just how mighty our Savior must be to walk outside of the tomb. Have you lowered your expectation of what God can really do? Maybe for years you've been just waiting for someone to make a coherent defense of something like the resurrection. And maybe today for the first time you would say, you know what, I, I haven't really given my belief a chance. And maybe today you would say, this would be, listen, all over the world today, people are considering this question. Is Jesus who he says he was and says he is? Is he really alive? Did he defeat the grave? Did he walk out of the tomb? Because if he did, then maybe, just maybe, today I would take a first step towards trusting him. Maybe you've trusted him in the past and you took the step, but the weight of the world and the crushing doubts of other people's influence have crushed some of that out of you. And today would just be a moment, a wise step to take, to say, you know what? I'm just gonna take a step towards Jesus. I don't have all the answers, but it's time to take another step. Maybe today, you know, we, we got the baby bottle fundraiser out there for New Beginnings House. The whole point of New Beginnings House is just loving on people whose lives have hit a very difficult place and letting them know that people who have experienced hope from Jesus are willing to give hope away. And maybe today is just about what ways you can give hope away because of the belief that you have. So here's what I'm gonna invite you to do. Would you stand with me? Some of you got questions. Next week, we're gonna do a visitor's lunch. I'll hang out, I'll answer questions. Many of you jumped into rooted classes this time around. We've got, we've got curriculum opportunities for you to, to grow in your faith. We wanna answer your questions. You don't have to believe it all, but Paul says, if you believe this, you're on your way. So here's what I would like to invite you to do. I don't think it's any more spiritual to close your eyes than to not close your eyes. But sometimes the privacy of closing your eyes gives you just a moment. So I wanna invite you to just close your eyes for just a moment. And if you're in the house tonight, today, this moment, and you've been challenged by the simple truth that all our faith hangs on the resurrection. And if Jesus really conquered the grave, maybe you've never trusted him before, but you're willing to take a step. And you don't know where the end of that's gonna go, but today's about taking a step. Jesus' invitation was always come and follow me. You don't have to have it all figured out. He didn't wait until everything was solved to invite you to follow. But maybe today is the day you take a first step. This would be a great day. It's Easter, that'll be memorable. It's April Fool's, that'll be memorable. Opening day of baseball just happened. I don't know how you connect memories, but this would be a great day to look back and say, on that day, I started walking towards Jesus and my life has never been the same. If you're in the room and you've never done that and you'd like to do that, would you just lift a hand simply saying, yeah, I, I need to take a step. No one's looking around, I see that hand. Yeah, anyone else? Anyone else, I need to take a step. I need to take a step, yeah. See that hand, I need to take a step. Anyone else, I'll give you a moment. Yeah. 
Hallelujah. The Bible says, now I'll give you the Sunday school answer, that all of heaven rejoices when you do that, and that's amazing. And that's amazing. Maybe you're in the house, and you've taken that step before, but your belief has been sent to a pretty, pretty, pretty low level. And maybe today Jesus would just be calling you to believe not just, come on now, in your childhood faith, but in a personal relationship that's growing and thriving. And you were to look around, you say, I don't feel like I've been growing or thriving. I need to take a step toward Jesus. If he had enough power to conquer the grave, there's enough power for the situation I'm in. And you'd say, yeah, I need to take a step. Even though I've taken a step before, I need to take another step. Would you lift a hand just so I know who I'm praying for? Yeah, I see that hand, I see that hand. Yeah, all over this place, I see that hand. Yeah. So Jesus, as we begin to walk towards you, we just celebrate the reality of how good you are, how faithful you are, and how much we can trust you, that you conquered the grave. We love you. And in this moment, God, we look back and say, oh God, he is risen. He is risen indeed. Would you lift your voices with me as we sing praise to God before we leave this house?